I guess there are two issues that our, our participants highlighted. One, there's no agreement on what reform would look like. So there are kind of ideas from emanating from different people, but there isn't a kind of consensus on what those changes should involve. And also there's a fear amongst people in politics and people working on on this issue that if you were to change how Strand 1 operates too much or in one particular direction, you could undermine the settlement and under, undermine a lot of the progress that the agreement has brought on other fronts. So there's a kind of caution there from, from elites about what changes would actually entail. Hello and welcome to this month's Aaron's Podcast. I'm Rory Montgomery. Regular listeners may remember that a few months ago we had a podcast on the negotiation of the Good Friday Belfast Agreement involving two of the senior officials most involved, David Donoghue and Tim O'Connor. But today we're going to take a look at how the agreement has functioned uh, over the 25 years since and how it's perceived. And I'm delighted to have with me today Professor Alan Rennick, who's the Deputy Director of the Constitution Unit at University College London, and Connor J. Kelly, who's both a research assistant and a PhD student at the University of London uh, and was the project manager um, for the publication that we're going to be discussing today. Uh, That publication is Perspectives on the Belfast Good Friday Agreement, Examining Diverse Views, 1998 to 2023, and it was published on the 26th of July uh, this year. And I should say that Alan and Connor are also very much involved in a superb earlier piece of work by University College London's Constitution Unit. Uh, It was a report of the Working Group on Unification Referendums on the Island of Ireland, and that came out in 2021, and it's a magnificent work of analysis and reference. So, but coming to today's um, focus. Um, Alan, would you like to talk a bit about the the origins of the report and its broad purposes as uh, as you saw them uh, um, in setting out? Yes, absolutely. And uh, thank you, Rory, for that very kind introduction. And it's uh, great to see you and great to be on the podcast today. And yes, I, it's a very good question. Why is an academic sitting in London who normally works on elections and referendums and citizens' assemblies and things like that uh, doing this report exploring uh, attitudes to the Belfast Good Friday Agreement? Um, but I guess for me, at least, it very much started with the the earlier project that you've just referred to there. We did the the working group on unification referendums on the island of Ireland, where we looked, if you like, at one particular part of the the framework created by the 1998 agreement. And um, I guess I took away two things from that that um, led on to this further report. One of those was simply, well, we had looked at one part of the agreement and I really wanted to look at other parts of the agreement and understand how those were working and how people perceived them and so on. But then secondly, one of the big lessons for me coming out of our earlier work was just the degree of ignorance in London of Northern Ireland and disengagement in London from Northern Ireland, and that that was a real problem, and that it was important for people in London, and not just kind of the, the kind of core people in the Northern Ireland office and you know, the people who are, who are really really focused on Northern Ireland, but it was important generally for people who think about politics, who think about the constitution, who think about the operation of democracy in the UK to be thinking more and to understand more about um, politics in Northern Ireland. And I guess I would actually put myself in that category as well. So so part of my motivation for doing this report was that I would learn more about uh, attitudes towards the the Belfast Good Friday Agreement. Um, But but also a, a key objective was that we would uh, encourage people in London to understand the importance of the agreement and, and we, we would help in that process. So that's why the report starts off with what for you know many people in Northern Ireland and more widely on the island of Ireland might find a rather basic kind of introduction to what's actually in the agreement. Um, because you know knowledge of, of the agreement in itself is often quite limited in, uh, in London and in Great Britain more broadly. Um, but then we wanted to 
understand the range of different perspectives that exist on the agreement. And, you know, I think it's really important to recognize that there is a range of different perspectives on the agreement. To some extent, the agreement in 1998 was written with constructive ambiguity, the phrase that is sometimes used uh, in mind, given the the uh, the sensitivity of many of the issues that are addressed in the agreement. Clearly, sometimes it was important just to um, to not push too far uh, the, the precision. But that means that, that now often you know, there, there are different views that different people take on the agreement. And understanding those different perspectives seems to me incredibly important. And I think, it, you know, it's still the case in London that there's a, a failure to recognise the importance of listening to voices in Northern Ireland, uh, to listen to the range of different voices that exist in Northern Ireland, uh, and to understand that those voices matter including the voices that are kind of annoying from the perspective of many people who are sitting in, in government and parliament in Northern Ireland. Um, it's really important to listen to those voices. So really what the report does is set out in quite simple terms uh, what people have said and what people think about the agreement. And as I said, we start off with a, with a chapter simply outlining what the agreement is what, what it contains and what has happened in terms of its implementation. And then we uh, do an analysis of party manifestos um, since 1998. So the manifestos of the parties in Northern Ireland, the five main parties in Northern Ireland. And we look at what they have said about all the various different aspects of the agreement. Then we report on the results of a bunch of interviews that we did with a whole range of uh, different uh, people from political parties, from civil society, academics, uh, and, and so on. And then finally, we report on a series of focus groups that we ran uh, in order to understand the perspectives of regular members of the public across all the various different communities in Northern Ireland. Thank you, Alan. That's very clear um, description of, of, of what the report is about and, and what it um, what it contains. Um, I'll stick with you for the moment, maybe, and then move to Connor um, in a mo- in a little while. Um, the party manifesto analysis I found very interesting uh, because I haven't seen a similar exercise done before. Uh, and what would you say were the main findings of that piece of work? Yeah, it's been fascinating, actually. So I, I found that really interesting, but it's also a lot of the people who've responded to the report and commented on it have have said that they found that particularly illuminating. Even people who do know a great deal about Northern Ireland uh, have said that um, just looking back over time and seeing the the patterns in the views expressed about the agreement over time has been fascinating for them. Um, And I guess what we see over time is in the early years after 1998, Understandably, you see the the views that the various parties had in the 1998 negotiations reflected in their manifestos. So you see very strong statements of commitment to support for the agreement, uh, especially from the SDLP, of course, also from uh, the from Alliance and from Sinn Féin in, in somewhat different ways. Each party very much emphasising its own take on the agreement and what they saw the agreement as delivering. Uh, the UUP also was very supportive of the, the principle of power sharing, the fact that there would be devolved government restored, uh, the fact that the principle of consent was established that Northern Ireland had Northern Ireland would determine its own future, that it couldn't be uh, pushed into a united Ireland against its will. It was, was it, it talked less kind of um, explicitly about the agreement itself. You can see the fact that clearly the agreement was very divisive within the UUP and among unionist opinion in Northern Ireland. So it's quite kind of cautious in how it talks about the agreement itself, but nevertheless, it very much supports the underlying principles. While on the other side, of course, the DUP is much, much more critical. So you see that divide in the early period. Um, and and that you see that kind of playing itself out over the subsequent 10 years up, up to the St. Andrew's Agreement, uh, when, of course, Sinn Féin and DUP uh, uh, agreed and were able to come in to form the executive. And then you see a period of, of 10 years or so, that period when the executive 
was functioning and you know things were operating relatively smoothly when the parties just don't talk so much about the agreement uh, and it kind of seems like the support for the agreement simply becomes what we refer to in our report as the settled will of the parties in Northern Ireland. It's just in the background. It doesn't need particularly to be spoken about. But then in the years since then, so the years since um, since the Brexit referendum in the UK and since the collapse of the institutions, again, you start to see more kind of explicit general references to the agreement as a whole. So some of the parties really feel the need to express their support for the agreement as a whole. Uh, the DUP in its most recent um, manifesto for the assembly elections in 2022 uh, refers to the agreement as having led to the early release of terrorists. So, you know, it's clearly quite a, a negative framing that they're putting on the agreement there. So you can see again the contestation of the, of the agreement starting to bubble up at, at least a bit uh, as a result of the growing tensions that have emerged in the last few years. And, and just related to that, actually, just very quickly, um, the argument developed by a lot of people on the unionist side, uh, however, is that the uh, Northern Ireland Protocol and the Windsor Framework undermine and cut across uh, the agreement. Um, therefore, the implication being that the agreement is a good thing, um, a bulwark um, of their position, which is somehow being eroded. And has there been any trace of that in in manifestos? Yeah, absolutely. And I think you are right that it remains the case that at the elite level, at least, there, there is a consensus that the agreement is the only game in town. There is no alternative to the agreement. Um, uh, so, so you know, there's a bit of negative mood music that emerges, uh, particularly in the DUP manifesto in 2022 in relation to the agreement. But there's no sense that uh, of kind of a move against the agreement or, or a decision to, to to turn it another way that we see that there is some talk about possible reforms and that kind of thing, but not a move against the, the whole structure by any means. And finally, uh, one group you didn't mention or one voice, which was very important at the time, though not you know hugely representative, was that of loyalism. Um, and interestingly, I mean, the opposition, certainly to the framework, Windsor Framework seems most acute um, in loyalist communities, but back in 98, um, they were, of course, positive supporters of it. Absolutely. And that comes in in the later parts of our report where we do the interviews. Uh, so we included um, some loyalist voices in the interviews. And we also had in the focus groups, uh, a group who identified as, as loyalist. Because we focused our manifesto analysis only on the five main parties, those loyalist voices are a little bit absent from, from that part of the report. But um, actually, one of, one of the strongest messages that comes from the report as a whole is a concern from people across the whole spectrum and people in Dublin and London as well, that loyalist voices are not sufficiently heard. And many people in the loyalist community feel deeply betrayed, partly for exactly the reason that you, you say there, that the loyalist community was very supportive of the agreement in 1998. And David Irvine, the, the loyalist leader, you know, was one of the key figures uh, in delivering support for the agreement uh, on the unionist side, uh, particularly among loyalists in 1998. And uh, and those people feel very betrayed by, by what has happened over subsequent years. And there's great concern about that among many of the people we spoke with. Connor, turning now to you um, and the interviews you conducted with you know politicians and civil society representatives and former civil servants and so on. And here I suppose I have to disclose that I was one of those you interviewed and I can testify to the the thoroughness and the uh, care with which you conducted the interviews. Maybe you might just say a bit about, a bit more about who you spoke to, not by name, but by, by category, but also what, did you find that there were common threads Um in that, uh, in those interviews, um, you know, in, in terms of both of analysis and prescriptions for the future, or were there significant uh, differences? 
Yeah, so the the interviews were a, a a really interesting part of the of the process, and I think an interesting part of the report because largely over the course of the report, we focus on views in Northern Ireland. So the manifesto analysis is is centered on Northern Ireland, and the focus group participants were all from from people living in Northern Ireland. But the elite interviews allowed us the the interviews with politicians and academics and civil servants allowed us to look at voices from within Northern Ireland, but also voices beyond, and look at the opinions and the views of you know, policymakers and politicians in London and Dublin, as well as those in, in Belfast. So one of the things that Alan's already touched on, I guess the, the kind of core takeaway from the elite interviews is that there is what, what political scientists would call a kind of elite consensus. The idea that the, the, the Good Friday Agreement really is the only game in town. So that while there's lots of frustrations with how it operates in practice and ideas about how it, it could change and be improved, there's a general agreement across people who who are working in politics and working in the civil service that the Good Friday Agreement is the kind of starting point on how to move Northern Ireland forward, even 25 years on from, from 1998. Um, most of the interviews opened with a kind of general discussion of you know, people's memories of 1998 and how they felt implementation had gone over the last quarter century. And most participants, including those from Northern Ireland, but even, you know, people who are only occasional visitors to Northern Ireland, talked about how, you know, in the first, it, 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 to a large degree, the agreement is a success because it's a peace treaty. It's a peace negotiation. It, it, it was the culmination of a long peace process. And, and in that respect, it's been an enormous success because Northern Ireland is, you know, a transformed society. There are still ongoing issues. Um and 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 you know lingering security issues with with paramilitaries, but really it's unrecognizable to what it was in the 1990s and, and 1980s and 70s. So lots of people talked about just inability to to walk around Belfast city centre and Derry city centre to go you know the, the the thriving nightlife and tourism industries in those cities and just the kind of general kind of ease of life compared to what it was like during the troubles, the much diminished security situation uh, and. Um, the the somewhat improved economic situation in Northern Ireland. Uh, we moved on then to talk about the different strands of the agreement. So with strand one, lots of people for lots of different reasons are very frustrated with how it's gone since 1998. Um, you know, it, everyone listening will be well aware. Strand one, the the assembly and the executive are are prone to very frequent collapse, uh, and there was lots of thoughts from our participants about you know what the causes of that were. Um, one of the kind of frustrating things, and, and, and this is probably shared by politicians working in this area, is that there are lots of ideas for how to reform the Strand 1 institutions to make them more durable and less prone to collapse. Uh, but I guess there are two issues that our, our participants highlighted. One, there's no agreement on what reform would look like. So there are kind of ideas from emanating from different people, but there isn't a kind of consensus on what those changes should involve. And also there's a fear amongst people in politics and people working on the, on this issue that if you were to change how strand one operates too much or in one particular direction you could undermine the settlement and under, undermine a lot of the progress that the agreement has brought on other fronts so there's a kind of caution there from from elites about what changes would actually entail um we then talked about strands two and three that the north the north south dimension to the agreement and the east west dimension to the agreement one of the things that really came out of the interviews uh, from across the political spectrum, you know, people coming at it in different ways, but but generally from across the political spectrum is that those two dimensions are very important. Um, and there's a kind of frustration with the 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 lack of attention that's been paid to north, south and east, west issues. And um, particularly, uh, I think, in the kind of 2010s um, in more recent times. Um, in some respects, that diverges from what we saw in the manifestos, especially on strand three. So lots of people we talked about, including politicians, kind of stressed the, the importance of east-west connections of, of Dublin and London working together. But what we found in the manifesto analysis is that the parties actually don't talk about that issue all that much in the manifestos. So institutions like the, the British-Irish Intergovernmental Conference and the, the British-Irish Council were said to be very important in the interviews, but don't actually come up that much in party manifestos. So that was interesting. We then talked about other issues, the kind of what people, some people call the implementation agenda of the agreement. So outstanding issues that are are included in the agreement, but 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 haven't um, been brought to fruition. So we talked about the civic forum, 
there's kind of various perspectives on this. Some people thought it should be revived. Other people thought that it, it you know, it, it it wouldn't do much to resolve the situation in, in Stormont at the moment. And that time has probably moved on a little bit since that idea was, was first brought about uh, in the agreement. Um, we also talked about a Bill of Rights. You know, unsurprisingly, there's uh, very different views amongst elites about uh, what a Bill of Rights would entail, whether or not there should be an, a Bill of Rights specifically for Northern Ireland. Um, some unionists thought that that should be part of a kind of wider UK effort um, to codify rights. Other people thought that, you know, rights don't need to be codified in that way. Obviously, nationalist participants that we spoke with were much more enthusiastic about the idea of a Bill of Rights, you know, and 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 to some extent, those from the kind of other non-aligned tradition as well agreed on that front. Can we maybe just take you back um, to the strands, um, or you individually, with strand mm-hmm. one, I mean, I think there's been a lot of focus of late, n- not just on the, um, you know, the breakdown of cooperation um, between the, the main parties and, and the suspension of the institutions, but also a lot of question marks over the effectiveness um, of devolved government. And I know this is a point which your colleague um, at UCL, Alan Weissel, has made more than once. To what extent did that issue um, emerge as a as a concern? I mean, different people have different perspectives on this. I think there's a widespread sense that the petition of concern in the Assembly has been abused um, and that it's been used too often um, and for reasons that, you know, weren't originally envisaged in 1998. So at the time of the interviews, uh, the the petition of concern had just been modified in, in New Decade new approach um and obviously we don't have a lot of kind of data on on how 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 that reform is working in practice because the assembly is not up and running but there was there was kind of agreement on that and and kind of tentative welcoming of the reforms that were brought about um there's a frustration on the ability of of one party to bring down the 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 the, the ability of one of the two largest parties to bring down um the assembly lots of participants that we spoke with uh, lamented the changes that were made at St Andrews around the appointment of the first and deputy first minister, and, and felt that that kind of fed into the um, the instability of the agreement, or sorry, of the of the executive. Uh, there were proposals from some to move to uh, to voluntary coalitions with a certain threshold of of support. Um, some people suggested sixty five percent. You know, other people didn't specify what the what the threshold would be. Um, but again, this is an area where there were fears from some that if one of the two largest parties were to be locked out of power in that way, that you would undermine the kind of consensual, consociational nature of the agreement and, and that, you know, people should tread very carefully with reforms of that of that kind, moving away from, you know, mandatory coalition between the two largest, between the two largest parties. No, absolutely. And, and those are arguments which arise um, a, a great deal. And I think it's fair to say that that many of us who were actually involved in the ninety eight negotiations, and I hope it isn't just pride of authorship, you know, do share those concerns about um, you know destabilizing you know the balance of the of the agreement while recognizing the problems. But you know, but just on the on the point I raised specifically, the the effectiveness uh, in terms of governance um, of the institutions when they have been sitting, um, there's a lot of criticism. Um, out there about the inability of the uh, political leaders uh, to come to grips with, you know, the real crisis in the NHS, which has been building up for quite a while. Or at the moment, as we speak, there's this, you know, enormous uh, ecological problem um, with the uh, the poisoning of, of Loch Ney. Uh, and again, that's blamed to some degree, at least fairly or unfairly, uh, on the inaction of, of the executive over a, over a period. But the, those issues... Um, emerge or was the focus overwhelmingly on those sort of um, institutional aspects that you mentioned? Uh, uh, well, I, I think there was a lot of focus on the institutional aspects. You know, there was a sense that, you know, you can't have good governance if you don't have a functioning government. So that that obviously was a pressing issue that lots of people brought up. But people did bring up issues of good governance and a lack of good governance. A lot of people related that to ongoing pockets of of economic deprivation that persist in Northern Ireland. And again, that was tied to, you know, people who who raised the ongoing presence of of paramilitary organizations in 
some of those you know pockets of society. So people did talk about issues like that. Obviously, the NHS waiting list issue did come up. Um, the the ecological problems uh, weren't at the at the top of minds in in two thousand and twenty two like they are now. Um, but yeah, pe pe people did talk about that, and they did talk about the need for you know when the assembly is functioning, it needs to have a a program for government. It needs to have a purpose. It needs to have a kind of you know driving um, vision for where the politicians in Northern Ireland want to take Northern Ireland societally and economically. Um, and there, I guess there are fears that the, the the tendencies of the institutions to collapse is one problem, but also that the, the work of making Northern Ireland function and, and getting Northern Ireland to a place where, you know, it has a good system of governance is, is ongoing, you know, irrespective of whether or not the institutions are up or down. Alan, I have two questions for you about this. Um, for, for, first of all, you know, I was struck in reading the report that while uh, people you know, recognised the importance of strands two and three in the overall architecture of the agreement. People were pretty, you know, disillusioned um, with the functioning of the institutions and their scope and ambition uh, to the point where one even wonders to what extent three-stranded approach is altogether a, an accurate description of, of what we have. I mean, is one leg of the stool a great deal longer than the other two? Yeah, absolutely. We saw that in the manifesto analysis and in the interviews and in the focus groups. In the manifesto analysis, strand one get, just gets much, much more attention in manifestos than either strand two or particularly strand three. And strand three is almost absent uh, from the manifestos over much of the time. And similarly, you know, as Connor was saying, um, interviewees had quite a lot to say often about strand one and possible reforms to strand one. And uh, often they were quite conflicted on reforms. They could see arguments, strong arguments in favour, but also strong arguments against. So, you know, they'd, they'd clearly been thinking about these issues, even if they hadn't come to very clear conclusions about them. Whereas thoughts on strands two and three were generally much less developed. Uh, and we saw that in the it, in the focus groups too. So people on the whole, um, regular members of the public on the whole, had a reasonable level of familiarity with the core strand one institutions. You know, they knew what the assembly was, they knew what the executive was, they had some basic understanding of, of how those function. But they had very, very little uh, knowledge of strands two, uh, and again, particularly strand three. There was one point where the, the person who ran the focus groups uh, referred to the British-Irish Intergovernmental Conference. And one of the participants in the focus groups made some joke about, is that the new Star Wars movie? Because uh, <laughs> clearly this just seemed a completely bizarre thing to be talking about uh, to this person. Um, so, yeah, that, that is the case. Um, so, But also you would say among the elites as well. Uh, yes, um, but it was also the case, and I, I know Connor wants to come in, but um, it, it was also the case that there was general support for uh, the three-strand framework um, at the elite level. And uh, so, so there was a clear desire for the British and Irish governments to engage more and a clear recognition that that is important. Um, uh, on, on strand two, it was very interesting, actually, on strand two. There was general recognition, mainly among nationalists and non-aligned people, um, that Strand 2 is an important part of the agreement and people wanted it to work. Uh, but they didn't have many kind of concrete ideas about well, how to make it work. What, what might you get it doing? Um, yes. So, you know, Connor can probably talk about this more. So, so I should let Connor... That, that was the point I, I, I was... I was just wanting to make that this is an area where the interview participants, you know, maybe agreed that strand two wasn't operating as it, as it was envisaged in 1998. Lots of people blamed, you know, unionist politicians withdrawing from the institutions or, or, or not really fully committing to them since 1998. But something that came up from a couple of different participants, including some nationalist participants themselves and not nationalist politicians themselves was that even when strand two was operating, you know, it, it doesn't really have a kind of, it's not a mainstay of the Brit of the the Irish political calendar when the the NSMC meets, and you know the 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 
program of things that it's doing isn't particularly ambitious. So there's a frustration that it's being stymied by, you know, unionist distrust of it. But there's also a sense that, you know, the Irish government, that nationalism in, the, in Northern Ireland hasn't made the most of the North-South strand since 1998 and that it could be doing more and it could be proposing more things that it could be doing. Um, and equally with, with East-West, there's a frustration that unionism distrusts the East-West channel, the, the strand three elements of the agreement. But similarly, there's a sense uh, amongst many participants that you know, the Dublin government weren't particularly interested in Strand 3 for a long period of time, particularly after the institutions were back up and running in 2007. There was a sense that, you know, Ireland was preoccupied with the, the fallout of the, the bailout and the financial crisis and that they they kind of took the, the eye off the ball uh, with the with the East West with the East West Channel, East West dimension to the agreement. Yes, there was um, you know, from about 20. 20- 12 on, I think, a, se- a separate sort of distinct channel involving the two, the Prime Minister, the Taoiseach, Amanda um, Kenny and David Cameron, um, outside the structures of the of the agreement, which sought to improve cooperation and, 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 and so on. One other question about the elite interviews. Um, what did people think, and, and you've sort of hinted at this or more than hinted at it, what did they think of the performances of the two governments uh, well, they were universally negative, I think we can safely say, about the performance of the UK government. And I mean, I guess one thing that we should emphasize, which we haven't really so far, is the timing of the research. So the interviews were conducted in late 2021 and early 2022. Uh, and the focus groups were conducted in the summer of 2022. So the interviews took place when Boris Johnson was prime minister in the UK. And I don't think anyone had a good word to say about Boris Johnson. And that applies to the interviews and also to the focus groups with members of the public. There was a a sense across the board that he and his government uh, didn't understand Northern Ireland, wasn't interested in Northern Ireland, was pursuing the government that Boris Johnson was pursuing his own objectives uh, uh, rather than thinking about what was in the best interests of Northern Ireland. Um, there was also um, quite a lot of scepticism expressed uh, towards the Irish government. Perhaps I should let Connor answer that because uh, he's thought about that quite a lot, I know. Yeah, there, there were, I mean, in the interviews and in the focus groups, you know, people across the political spectrum, obviously it, it varies by community, but were distrustful of of London, I'm sorry, of Dublin, um, unionist members of the public in the focus group and unionists we spoke with, you know, were, were kind of withering of, in their assessment of, of Dublin's role in Northern Ireland and, and not particularly enthusiastic about, about you know, the North, South and the East, West Channel being enhanced or used more. Um, They didn't think that that would be particularly helpful. Um, But nationalists too, I think, were frustrated. And, you know, one participant in the focus groups and and a couple of people that we spoke with in the interviews felt that Dublin wasn't engaged enough in Northern Ireland, didn't understand the dynamics of politics in Northern Ireland enough. Um, A few people sort of, you know, implied that Dublin or directly said that Dublin uses Northern Ireland opportunistically for political purposes when it suits them and then you know takes the eye off the ball when when it's not politically uh, you know expedient for them to be involved um i think that as alan said i think people were more negative about london and particularly the johnson government um yeah but it, it would it would be difficult to argue that at the elite level or at the public level that dublin is getting a a an a grade either Maybe we can now move on to the focus groups and um, just first of all, very briefly, h- how were they constituted? Um, and as I understand it, they attempted to group together people of sort of similar opinions uh, and similar intensity of opinion. Am I right in that? Yeah, that's right. So that's, um, I guess, how you would normally do a focus group. The idea is that you 
uh, enable people to have a conversa conversation among a group of people who have broadly the same view and that allows that view to be expressed clearly and you can see just what people are thinking. So we had eight groups in total and three of them were broadly from nationalist Republican perspectives, three from unionist loyalist perspectives and two from non-aligned perspectives with, with some differentiation uh, among the groups in each of those categories as well. So particularly the the three unionist loyalist groups were, were quite sharply differentiated from, from each other. One was quite a kind of hardline unionist group. Uh, one was a much softer unionist group. And the third was very clearly a loyalist identifying people. Uh, it was quite interesting, actually, that the, the identities were very clearly expressed among those three unionist groups, while among the three nationalist groups, the we, we can attempted to have differentiation, similar sort of differentiation uh, between those groups, but actually they they were much less clearly distinct from each other. I'm, I'm not sure whether that was just a feature of our uh, recruitment process or whether it reflects uh, something more underlying. But so people were, were recruited from the streets um, in various different places in uh, Northern Ireland, and then the um, the focus groups were conducted by a professional uh, focus group a facilitator following a set of questions that we had had, had provided uh, in order to ensure you know that we were being fair and equal across all of the groups yes you you mentioned um a moment ago the the joke about whether the British Irish intergovernmental conference was the name of a, a Star Wars film and if it if it were I think I don't know how many people it would attract um to the, to the box <laughs> office but there were some other interesting and in some sometimes rather startling um, expressions of ignorance about or indifference uh, to the agreement. I, I I was very struck by the, the one referring to Dairy Girls, for example. That, that's very interesting. I, um, I mean, I think it's always important for people like us. And I guess in, in that category, I include the three of us on in this conversation, but probably also most of the people who listen to this podcast, uh, to remember that most people don't think about politics very much. And particularly when they're thinking about politics, they don't think about institutions. So in many ways, this was actually quite an informed group of people. Um, we commented in the report that phrases like power sharing and sovereignty and cessation of violence came out of uh, these regular people off the street uh, in a way that I don't think would happen in Britain, in Great Britain. Just to echo that, yes, people don't aren't aware particularly of the the institutions and the mechanics of how they work. But when when we talked about Strand Two and and kind of made clear to them that the North South Ministerial Council was about relations between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland, or we talked about East West issues, you know, about the relationship between the, the Irish government and the British government, people were quick to kind of offer their general thoughts, maybe not on how the institutions work, but on what the relationship should be between the different parts of these islands. And and the other thing that is quite interesting, I think, about the focus groups is that, and we, we comment on this in, in the report, members of the public kind of know the cast of characters of who's involved in politics, both both present and in the past. So people, you know, regularly brought up people like David Irvine, John Hume, um, you know, they 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 knew all mo most of them knew the leaders of all the major political parties in Northern Ireland in a way that I would be surprised that people in in, you know, if we did a focus group in in the Republic of Ireland or the UK might. I don't know if people will remember, you know, who the party leader of the Liberal Democrats was in the 1990s. I would be very surprised if they did. Yeah, well, I, I did refer um, to the Dairy Girls thing, because if I remember correctly, somebody sort of said, I dare say, possibly pulling your leg or pulling the, the moderator's leg that he'd kind of forgotten all about the Good Friday Agreement until he had seen it um, in the final episode of, of Dairy Girls. Um, but moving on, I mean, so as you say, maybe not much specific knowledge or very little specific knowledge of the institutions and their functioning, but a, a broad overall sense of, of how the different bits, you know, in principle fit together and, and, and who are the people, you know, the actors who are meant to be making the institutions uh, work. Maybe we could begin at the perspectives of the different communities. And, and again, I was really struck here um, by the overall differences of between nationalists as a whole and the different categories of, of unionists. I felt very much that, you know, one was by no means the, the mirror image of the of the other. So maybe, I mean, Connor, you might say a bit about about the nationalist groups and maybe, Alan, a bit about the unionist. 
Yeah. So in, in the focus groups, again, opened with kind of general perceptions of the agreement. If people were old enough to remember 1998, we asked them, you know, for the recollections of that period and for the younger participants to kind of think back on that time and, and offer us their thoughts on how Northern Ireland has progressed in the last 25 years. And for the most part, you know, when it comes to kind of peace, everyday life, security issues, the nationalists were very, very positive um, and kind of acknowledged that Northern Ireland has made a lot of, of progress. Um, then when we get into the issues around the three strands, you know, similar to what we saw at the elite level, people are very frustrated at the stop-start nature of, of power sharing. Uh, they were particularly scathing about the DUP, which, you know, is not surprising in a nationalist group. Um, and then when it, you know, when it comes to the role of the British Irish governments and the second and, and third strands, as we've kind of alluded to, there wasn't a particular, you know, uh, awareness of, of, of how the institutions functions and what, you know, what their remit is, but a general sense that, you know, the, the, the different elements of the agreement are not working as well as they could be. And that, you know, you know, frustrations with the situation with Brexit, with the ongoing stalemate at Stormont, and a kind of just general dissatisfaction with how politics is being conducted at present. So very positive about the agreement bringing peace, but but very frustrated that, you know, the issues that they care about, the economy, the healthcare service, you know, the different aspects of, of everyday life are not being tended to by local politicians. And, 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 and that British and Irish politicians are not paying sufficient attention to those issues either. Did any of did any of the participants in the nationalist groups raise the question of um, policing? Because, you know, in general people would say or you know that, you know, irrespective of the current turbulence which the PSNI is going through, the policing has generally worked and in particular it has, you know, Im- improved relations between the police and nationalist communities greatly. But did anyone um, make that point or or allude to the policing? Lots of people talked about security and policing in in the past and and how how bad the situation was during the troubles. People didn't bring it up as a to my recollection as a particular issue in the present. Though that being said, some of the um, elite interviews that we did with politicians and academics did bring up the fact that fifty fifty recruitment to the PSNI had ended and sort of flagged that as something that policymakers should be looking at a potential potential issue in the future for you know, relations between police, between the police service and between the nationalist community. But no, to the best of my, to my knowledge, uh, the, the nationalist participants in the focus groups didn't, didn't focus on that, on that issue. Do you, do you disagree, Alan? No, I think that's right. Whereas among unionists, this was an issue that came up uh, among some unionists. So I, I, I agree, Rory, that um, with what you said earlier, that there were some very striking findings here. And among the unionist groups, uh, so some, particularly the soft line unionists, as we as we refer to them, softer unionists, uh, shared the kind of very positive outlook on the principles underlying the agreement uh, that we saw among nationalists and also non-aligned participants. Um, loyalists also looked back very positively, or, or looked back to viewing the agreement positively at the time. Uh, it, it was agreed, uh, but the hard the hardline unionist group uh, expressed a very negative view and indicated that they had been very negative about the agreement the whole way through. And they talked in part about police reform, but the big issue that came up for a lot of them was the issue of prisoner releases. And I guess again, for, for me as an outsider uh, coming into this, I found that that very striking that. So many people were still very, very focused on the concern that the agreement was primarily, in their view, um, an instrument that led to the release, well, as as that DUP manifesto said that I referred to earlier, of terrorists. Uh, And they clearly didn't think of that particularly as something that has happened on both sides. So they were particularly concerned about uh, understandably, about release of, of terrorists from the Republican movement. And that was still a very, very big um, lens through which they viewed the whole framework. And they saw the other features of the agreement as 
not providing sufficient compensation for what they saw as that core element. Because I guess it, in, in part, they were also questioning the, the good things that had come from the agreement as well. So they were questioning the degree to which the security situation had really changed. They were questioning the degree to which economic circumstances had really changed for people. Yeah, I, I found that really striking as well. So it, it's something that when you when you read about the 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 immediate aftermath of the agreement, you know, this was the dominant political issue: the release of prisoners uh, in, in, from 1998 on, and it, it 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 is reflected in the manifesto analysis as well. We see a huge spike in the early years around this issue, and then it kind of tapers off over time. But it really was striking, as Alan says, particularly in the unionist loyalist groups, that people kept coming back to this. You know, even 23, 24 years on 24 years on i think at the time of the focus groups so that was uh that was particularly striking and just a just a further thought on the on the relationship between policing and, and nationalism i guess the timing of the focus groups is probably important there there was that issue last summer at the the sean graham commemoration uh, i think that happened after the focus group so perhaps you know if we had done the focus groups at a different time those issues would have come to the fore in the nationalist group um but yeah uh, as it is, as it was, it was it was the unionists and loyalists who brought up policing and security issues much more than the nationalists did. Yes, I, I mean, I suppose people would say that there would have been differences over time um, in perceptions of Republican prisoners within nationalism and loyalist prisoners within unionism. It seemed to me, when reading it, that in a way, the question of the release of prisoners is almost a proxy for 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 the bigger bigger issues. You know, that Ian Paisley said at one point, you know, while the institutions were suspended, pre-St. Andrews, that the IRA would have to wear sackcloth and ashes. And, of course, they didn't. So I suppose among unionists, and did this come through at all in the focus groups, there may be a sense that somehow, you know, quote, unquote, the IRA got away with it, um, haven't apologized, um, are now in a, you know, really in the Sinn Féin is in a very strong position, north and south. This sense, this overall sense that, that the tide is moving against them and there is this uh, feeling that, um, you know, they, the unionists, have been you know, the losers from the from the agreement. Yeah, I mean, people have commented and written about this uh, uh, before us. Um, there is a sense, I think, in loyalism that the the, the spoils of peace and, and the, the kind of political benefits of the agreement have benefited nationalism and, and the Republican movement more than certainly than loyalist communities. Um, you know, one participant talked about uh, someone that someone who had had been involved in the murder of their grandfather ended up working in Stormont for Sinn Féin. You know, another another participant in the loyalist group said that, you know, political elites look at loyalism like dinosaurs um, and said that they're kind of, you know, portrayed in the media in an unfair light. I mean, part of that is probably because of the just the political dynamics of the last the last quarter century. Sinn Féin as a political movement ha have grown electorally. Uh, whereas the PUP and the, the other loyalist parties have have not fared as well. Um, and yeah, I, I think one of the things we said in the conclusion chapter is that there is this disconnect between voters and, and ordinary people and political elites, including the people that that they vote for. But I guess that's particularly acute in loyalism. They they don't feel that they're represented well by the mainstream unionist parties, whereas in, in nationalism, people, you know, kind of implicitly seemed to be uh, seemed to think that they were better politically represented by the SDLP and and by Sinn Fein but that's not that's not a divide that is um associated just with the contrast between elites and members of the public as a whole and one of the things i found quite striking was that in the non-aligned groups there was a kind of a bit of a feeling from some of the members at least of those groups that they were kind of the enlightened ones they were mm. the ones who were free of these strong traditional vestigial communal identities and that people who still gripped strongly to those identities were in the past were dinosaurs and you know i guess it's, it's understandable why people who who don't uh, share those identities or, or see themselves as having moved beyond those identities would have those views but they're they're quite dangerous views um in a context where there are many people who do care deeply about their historical identities and do remain very attached to them and feel under attack from other parts of society as well as from the political elite. Yes, and, and, and on that, the, the 
the some of the loyalist participants kind of brought a class dimension into that as well, where they felt that as they as they saw it, kind of middle class and upper class members of the Protestant community were looking down on them. So you know, Alan's correct; it's not just a disconnect between loyalism and political elites but kind of loyalism feeling isolated even within the what they would see as the protestant unionist loyalist community that people uh, you know are, are are looking down on them uh, and that they feel increasingly isolated from from politics and society well certainly i mean as i recall there there were times maybe not now so much but there were times when alliance um, was able to irritate both unionists and, and nationalists um, simultaneously um, because of this indeed perception that they were were were, were different. One last question about the focus groups, very briefly: uh, Did people talk about at all a, a united Ireland um, a referendum, either as an aspiration or as a threat? Were there any on the nationalist side who, frustrated with the functioning of the institutions, said, "Well, we we should really move on swiftly to to unity." So, so this, this, you know, unsurprisingly, this issue does, does, did come up, and we did ask about it. Um, I think what we found is that people have very strong community identities in the focus groups, so they identify very strongly with being from one of the the different communities. Um, you know, in the nationalist community, obviously, some participants did say and joked that they would, you know, vote for unity in the morning, and that's what they would, that's what they were, they were aspiring to. But other nationalists were much more hesitant. You know, some people talked about. You know how their positions and their their position in life had changed over time, and that how now that they had bills to pay and kind of kids to look after, that they're more hesitant and, and thinking more about what the economic cost of unity might be. But they they didn't really have particularly strong views either way on this question. No, they identified as being nationalists, but they didn't you know offer any particular thoughts about what a united Ireland would look like, what the timeline should be, uh, other than saying that it's not something that should happen tomorrow morning. Um. You know, unsurprisingly, people on the unionist side were much more hot, uh, much more hostile towards the idea of a united Ireland. One of the things we asked in the focus groups, and we also asked politicians and, and people in the interviews, is that do they have any thoughts on the United Kingdom as well, on possible reforms to the union and how the current union operates? So not just the internal politics of Northern Ireland, but how Northern Ireland sits within the UK and how the UK as a state functions. And there again, people didn't have any real concrete views. Um, you know, it was quite startling that, okay, people don't have a particular view on how a United Ireland would look and how a United Ireland would function, but they also don't have many thoughts off or around how the UK functions. So I guess the takeaway from that with the focus groups in mind is that people have these strong community identities. They care very deeply about how politics works and how it directly affects their everyday lives, the economy, the health service. Uh, and they have views on the constitutional future and they have views, you know, on, on what that should be. But that's not at the forefront of their minds, um, which which was quite striking. Well, you've you've earlier described, I think, the the fact that there's a consensus that the institutions do need reform, uh, but no consensus on what those reforms might be and, and no consensus um, on whether overall um, reform is necessary or potentially risky. And Alan, you spoke at the beginning about your desire to produce a report which um, would in some way help to inform wider um, opinion. Uh, and I have to say, I, I thought that your your summary really, the summary in this report is, is fantastic uh, as a really even-handed and, and fair account of things. But um, if you had to say what lessons would you draw from the report within the two governments and among sort of higher level politicians, but particularly in London and Dublin, what would you say? I would say the key thing is to engage and listen. And what I got above all from this project, particularly from the focus groups and just listening to the voices of regular members of the public across Northern Ireland, was a feeling that they're not being listened to, uh, that London doesn't care, that to an extent also Dublin doesn't really care. Um, and it seems clear that that is undermining the chances of reviving the institutions at present. So, you know, for me sitting in London, I'm not going to sit here offering prescriptions for what the solutions in Northern Ireland might be. 
uh, for me, the the key thing is that London simply needs to do a lot more listening, a lot more um, evident listening. It needs to demonstrate that it's listening. I mean, you know, uh, I, I have no doubt that there are many conversations happening behind the scenes, uh, but that's not being perceived. Certainly, it wasn't being perceived in 2022, uh, and you know, with with recent events uh, in terms of the legacy bill going through Parliament in London, it continues to look like London is is not listening and indeed is kind of closing its ears to what is being said by political actors across Northern Ireland. So, uh, yeah, I think I think that is simply the dominant concern that unless trust is built in Northern Ireland, uh, solutions are not going to be possible. And trust can be built only if people feel that they're heard and respected and understood. Uh, at the moment, there is a terrible deficit in all of those things. Yes, I suppose it, an interesting question, and it's alluded to by Alan Whitesell, whom I referenced earlier. An interesting question is if there if there is to be a, a change of government in, in London, whether that will uh, affect any of these perceptions, Connor. Um, finally, give you the last word. Any any f- comments you want to make? Anything which we haven't talked about that you'd like to highlight? Yeah, I, I mean, I think Alan's a parting message for Dublin and London of engaging and listening is definitely the correct one. The the other thing that I would add is that Dublin and London need to work on that together, um, and they need to approach Northern Ireland with a, with with a a joint idea of what they're working towards. Um, and be seen to be working together. Um, one of the things that came up in in a couple of the interviews was this sense from Dublin and London that you know Northern Ireland kind of needs to grow up and get on with it. You know that that, that it can't that Dublin and London can't hold its hand anymore. But the overwhelming message from you know people who've worked very closely on the peace process is that that's that's the wrong way to look at this. That progress is made in Northern Ireland when Dublin and London politicians are engaged. And, and that engagement is sustained. So we've seen progress over the last couple of months with the British government getting a little bit more engaged with the parties and engaged with the problems in Northern Ireland. But as Alan referred to with the legacy bill and, and the ongoing you know, inability to get the institutions back up, it seems that attention is drifting again and that that kind of, that kind of push um, you know, didn't last more than a couple of weeks. And I think if Northern Ireland is going to be put back on a more stable footing, London and Dublin need to be working together and they need to make a commitment to continue working together and have a kind of sustained approach to to their engagement in Northern Ireland and not just turn up when there's a crisis and try and, you know, offer a quick fix. This this is something that needs continuous attention. And as we record this at the end of September 23, of course, we've recently had a sort of a high-level spat between the two governments about this very question of, of working together. And and again, you know, those sorts of those sorts of spats between high-level British and Irish politicians is not particularly helpful. I mean, that goes that goes without saying. Well, Alan and Connor, it's been a really fascinating conversation for me. I'm sure our listeners will find it as well. Perhaps you might just like to say, Connor, because this report is not published in the usual place, which is um for, for our podcast subjects, which is Irish Studies and International Affairs. Um, if people want to read the report, wh- where can they find it? How can they find it? Yeah, it, well, if they go to the UCL Constitution Unit's website, it's the most latest report on the site. Um, but if they go to the, the publications and report section of the of the Constitution Unit's website, they'll find it. And it's free, free, to, free to read, free to download. Alan Rennick and Conor Kelly, thank you both so much. Thank you very much. ARANS stands for Analysing and Researching Ireland, North and South. It's a joint initiative of the Royal Irish Academy, which is the premier all-island scholarly institution, and the University of Notre Dame's Kyo Nocton Institute of Irish Studies, which is itself part of the Kyo School of Global Affairs. It was established in 2020 with the objective, especially at that time in a post-Brexit context, of producing authoritative independent and non-partisan analysis and research. 
across the full range of relevant constitutional, institutional and social issues. And in fact, over the last couple of years, uh, we've covered uh, a quite remarkable range of subjects. And the research can be found in the Journal of Irish Studies in International Affairs, which is published by the Royal Irish Academy, and access to which is free to all online. The aim is to be scholarly, uh, but also accessible and relevant. Publications began to appear in early 2021, um, and this podcast also began uh, in 2021 in June. I hope that you've enjoyed the podcast you just listened to, and I also hope that you will find others uh, of interest um, on our website, which is Aaron's Project. And also that you listen out for future podcasts, which are normally dropped on the first Thursday of every month. Thanks very much for listening.